Before we get going, I want to welcome those at our Southeast campus, those at our microsites, and those watching online. Can we give them a hand just for being a part of our conversation today? Thank you for being a part of this. Uh, well, I've been doing student ministry, working with middle school and high school students for over 10 years, and I'm 33 years old. And so in student ministry years, that's like 75, and I uh, can't believe I'm still doing it. But it's the most meaningful and fulfilling job that you can have, and just seeing teenagers get it. They get what God has for them, and the trajectory of their life completely changes because of the incredible experience they have. In fact, tomorrow I'm taking a bunch of upperclassmen to the L.A. area, and we're having a camp there, so I can't wait to see what God is going to do. But also, not only is it fulfilling, but also student ministry is one of the most insecure and self-conscious jobs you can ever have. When you're around teenagers all the time, if you have anything that's insecure, they'll just point it right out. They don't care. They have no shame. And so a few weeks ago, I had a student, uh, a girl, she said, Nate, you're so extra. And I don't know what extra means. And so I said, thank you, and I hate you. Like, I don't know if this is a compliment or not. And so I found out that extra uh, means that you're over the top and over dramatic. So I kicked her out of church, which is really bad. You know, I felt really sad for her, but it's how it is. You make fun of me. I have a student ministry pastor friend in California, and he posted a picture of him wearing a hat. And he said, yes, I'm wearing a hat tonight, not because a seventh grade girl made fun of my new haircut. Okay, that's what teenagers can do. They can just pull out those insecurities uh, from you. And another thing that student ministry pastors have to overcome is a lot of stereotypes. And one of the stereotypes we have to overcome is just being irresponsible. That's sort of a trend that happens across the nation with us. And a few years ago, I was hired on here at The Crossing. And when I got hired on, of course, you want to prove yourself. Like you hired me for a reason, and I'm here for a reason. I want to build trust with you and have this response responsible this ministry. And, and I was given an Apple computer, a MacBook computer. And I think Apple computers are like the best. I mean, if you have an Adele computer, I just feel sorry for you. I sing Adele pop songs to you. And I ask if it runs on diesel. I think, you know, Apple's just the best. And so I had this computer and I put programs on it and I set it up, I personalize it. Then I go to an outdoor mall to work on a message and I'm working on a message. I set my computer to side and I start writing stuff in my journal. And, and then I go meet a leader for lunch. And after my lunch is over, I go in my car, I pick up my backpack, and it is light. Like my, there's no computer in it light. And I start freaking out. My neck starts getting red. And I start looking all over my car. May I put my computer somewhere in my car? I look in the trunk of my car. Okay, why would you put a computer in the trunk of your car? But I just pray, God, wherever my computer is, just lay it there in the trunk of my car, open it up, and it is not there. I go back to where I was sitting and it is gone. I go in the stores around it. No one had seen it, lost and found. No one put my computer there. Somebody had stolen my computer. And you think, yeah, he stole it, but, uh, or he or she stole it, but you actually did leave it there for an hour and a half. And so I felt horribly irresponsible. I cannot believe it. I've never lost something this valuable before. But the worst part was having to go back and tell people that I had lost this computer. And Nate, the student ministry guy, yeah, of course, lost this computer. So I felt horrible. And, but because it was stolen, the insurance company covered a brand new computer. So I'm like, thank you, Lord. This is awesome. I got a fresh start, clean slate. The gospel is true, is real in my life. And so I have this new computer and I set it back up and I personalize it, get it all ready. And then three weeks later, I take it to a coffee shop. Some of you are ahead of me, yes. And I uh, have my backpack on and I set it next to me in my chair. And all of a sudden liquid begins to go from my backpack. 
And uh, I'm like, what is happening? So I look inside my backpack, and my Bible is wet. My journal is wet. And what was going on is that I had bought a 20-ounce Mountain Dew earlier. Don't judge me. Uh, but it, I hadn't screwed it on tight enough. And so the Mountain Dew was just going everywhere. And I think, oh, my goodness, my brand-new computer. And I pull out my brand-new computer, and it's just dripping of green, nasty Mountain Dew. And I press the power button, and Mountain Dew comes out of the power button. It is destroyed, Okay. Two computers, completely irresponsible. Nate, the student ministry guy, right? And for some reason, with that going on and other things that were happening in my life, this failure, I mentally went down a path of just destroying myself. I thought, I'm just a stupid person. And so I began to add a third word to who I was. And we all have this third word, right? It's simply titles that we give ourselves, like I'm a husband or father, student ministry pastor, I'm a Christian. But then we add other third words that would define who we are, our identity, and words like I'm confident or I'm forgiven, I'm God's child. But when failure hits my life, and when I was irresponsible with those two computers, I looked at myself and I would repeat over and over again, Nate, you're just you're an idiot, right? Or you're stupid, or you're worthless, or you're just a student ministry pastor, right? So I started immensely hurting myself, and I thought, if I can't be responsible with two computers, then how in the world am I going to be leading a ministry? How am I going to lead others to lead in their own life? How am I going to lead in the messiness of students' life? How will I do anything well? And I think for some of us, you walk in here today and you've given yourself a negative third word and it has defined who you are for a long, long time. In fact, we're going to look at a guy named Moses and his negative third, third words almost kept him from the opportunity that God had for him. Because we're in the middle of this series called Running with the Giants. And I love this idea that Shane has set up for us. We're in Hebrews 12, or Hebrews, I can't get that out of my head now, the joke, uh, that in Hebrews 12 it talks about how this life is a race. And how we're just trying to get to the end and have God with us on this race and endure some of the trials, some of the struggles, some of the failures. But the good thing is we are surrounded by a huge crowd of witnesses of Old Testament giants who have been there before us that can provide us the example of how to get through this life. So what if we ran one lap with one of these giants? And so today we're running lap with Moses. And unfortunately in Moses' life, in the very beginning, he had a hard time even defining what his third word was. Because when he was born, he was raised up in this Egyptian empire, this giant empire, and the, the slaves were the Israelites. And so when he was born as an Israelite, his mom was scared for his life and the quality of life he was going to have. So she put him in a basket, strategically, strategically placed the basket down a river where the princess of Egypt was just hanging out. The princess of Egypt receives this basket, she opens it up, and it's Moses. So he goes from identifying himself as, I'm an Israelite, to no way, I think I'm an Egyptian, right? And not just any Egyptian, I am like in the royal palace, like I'm the prince of Egypt. But because of this identity crisis he had in his life, he never really understood where he uh, was at. And so as he got older, he saw how the Egyptian slave masters were treating the Israelites. And one day he just couldn't take it and killed an Egyptian, a slave master. So he went from, I'm an Israelite to now I'm Egyptian. No, no, I think I'm a murderer. 
And this failure and this mistake shoots him out of Dodge. It gets him out of Egypt. It gets him away from everyone he knows. The next time we see him is he is at the side of a mountain and he is a shepherd herding sheep. And it wasn't like he had a franchise. It's not Chick-fil-A where he's like, I'm going to open another shepherd here with some sheep. And oh, down the road, I'm going to do another one. No, he is borrowing someone else's sheep and he is just a shepherd. And it is that mistake and it's that failure where he begins to give himself negative third words. So he begins to say things like, well, I'm alone, or I'm unworthy, or I'm depressed. And when failure hits our lives, it can radically change our third word. Some of you know exactly what I mean. When you, failure hits your life, it radically changes the third word, which then changes the way we think, the actions we take, and the decisions that we have. We go from living the life that God has for us and being excited to then being pulled away because of those third words we identify ourselves with. For some of you, think about maybe your failed marriage. I have a friend who was cheated on for years. His wife was cheating on him. And so for him, what his third word was, I'm a failure as a husband. And that third word kept him from figuring out, okay, will anyone ever love me again? Will I ever be with somebody again? Was it my attention and affection towards her that she had a, that drove her to someone else? Was it her fault? Was it my fault? And that began to define who he was. For some of you, you're maybe just trying to recover from an addiction. And it's so hard because you've had this a drawer full of 24-hour chips, but you can't seem to string days together and friendships you're losing and family, you don't really trust each other anymore. And you push God further and further away because you've added the third word to your life that I am an addict. And that sentence has defined you and your relationship with God and others. Will you ever be normal again? Can God help you in recovery with the addiction that you have? For others, maybe it's just parents. Uh, by show of hands at the Southeast campus or online or in here, raise your hand if you have an 18-year-old or younger. Raise your hand if you're a parent of an 18-year-old or younger. Isn't it the worst job ever, right? It's just the hardest thing. They don't come with manuals. They come with handbooks and so hard. And of course, being with, in student ministry for so long, I hear all the scenarios of parents where they struggle with. I remember a parent came to me and said, uh, you know, my kid lied to my face, this teenager. I'm like, oh no, like, what did you do? What's your discipline and how are you going to do this? Well, I've already taken away their phone and they're locked in their room for, you know, a year already and they can't date anyone until they're married. And so I don't know what else to do here. And they actually seem to be okay with it. They're like, yeah, I'll just be in my room. I don't even care. Like, what do I do about this, Nate? I'm like, I don't know. That sounds horrible. Just get a new kid. That's what I tell every um, parent. Just trade it in with somebody else. But when you feel like you're a failure as a parent and you get that call from that school and you cannot believe your kid had done something or said something, or you have a kid who is failing in a grade and they are not telling you and they've lied and you're thinking, what am I supposed to do? Uh, how do I pull this off? God, why did you give me children? I'm not wise enough. I'm not discerning enough. And the hard thing as a parent, and moms, you know this more than anything, if you feel like a failure as a parent, you feel like a failure at everything, Right? at your job, and marriage, and just who you are as a person. And that can define everything. I saw this uh, meme a few weeks ago. This fits perfectly what we're talking about today. It says, brain, uh, hey, what you doing? Me, nothing, just relaxing. Would you like to think about all of your failures? What? No. And away we go, right? Has that ever happened to you before? And we see Moses on the side of a mountain herding sheep. And you got to think his brain is just replaying all the failures that he's had over and over and over again. And if you know the story of Moses, you know that all of a sudden he comes up to this burning bush. And the burning bush doesn't seem to go away. And so he's intrigued by this and shows up and he sees that God is speaking to him from this burning bush. And I love what Shane said last week. When you are all alone, that's when God really gets your attention, right? 
And so God begins to speak to Moses and tells him this. I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their, because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land and into a good and spacious land. A land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites and the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, who had mosquito bites, who's flying kites late at night. Sorry, I was just... <laughs> Sorry, getting... And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. And Moses is like, yes, like finally. Like I was born in a basket, people. Like I've been sitting down because they've been oppressing my people for far too long. And I wish you would have come down before I killed the Egyptian and been here, but I'm glad you're going to come down. We're going to move to Southern California. The land is going to be amazing, and it's going to be great. Thank you. But then in verse 10, God says this to Moses. "Uh, So now go. I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Yes, what? No. Like, this is a bad idea. Like, this is plan A, God. Like, there's no other plan B. This seems like the worst idea at all, of all. But Moses then begins to famously give excuses of why he shouldn't do what God wants him to do. And these are the same excuses, I'm telling you, that I've used and I know that you have used to not do what God desires of us. And one of the first excuses, the I am statement that he gives to God is, I am not qualified. Anyone else not felt qualified before, right? Being a parent or being in a marriage or responsibility that maybe you've been given. Well, Moses says this about not being qualified. Uh, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? I'm a nobody, right? Another I am statement that Moses gives is this. I am confused. Anyone else been confused about what God's trying to pull off, right? Like how does my two computers fit in God's plan of all that he wants to do in my life, right? I mean, and for same with you, how did this work out? I'm kind of confused on this. And so Moses says this to God. Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, well, what is his name? Then what should I tell them? I'm just confused. This whole plan just seems like a really bad idea. The, another, uh, the next I am statement he gives is I am insecure. Suppose I do do this whole thing and I tell them exactly what you want me to do. They still won't believe me. And then what God does is so cool is they said, okay, if they just still don't believe you, you're going to take your shepherd's staff and I want you to throw it on the ground. And when you throw it on the ground, it's going to turn into a snake. Now, for me, in, this, in my brain, it's going to turn into your worst nightmare. Like, that's what in my head goes. So for some of you, it's going to turn into a snake. That's your worst nightmare, or a scorpion or a spider. For some of you, it's going to turn into a crying baby. That's just your worst nightmare. And so what God is saying is you're going to throw it down. You're going to pick that snake tail back up, and it's going to turn back into a shepherd's staff. And I think what God is saying is that when you do this, people are going to know that it is me working within you behind the scenes. And I think he's saying the same thing to us today. Because a shepherd's staff wasn't just a shepherd's staff. It wasn't just him uh, herding the sheep. It represented his social status, where he stood with everyone else, right? It represented his economic status, where he got his money and his security and contentment. It also represented where he was spiritually and intellectually, emotionally. He's on a side of a mountain because he's a murderer. He's away from everyone he knows. This thing represents far more than a shepherd's staff. And God's saying, before I can use you, you've got to let that down. 
And for some of you, the failures and the mistake, the third words you've let define who you are, God is saying to us today, let that down so I can finally work in your life. I love what this pastor said. He said, if you don't let your past die, it will keep you from being fully alive. If you do not let your past die, it will keep you from being fully alive. And Moses in this moment is having the most full of life vision for him. And he's almost letting his past and his failures, those third words, keep him from all that God has for him. Of course, then he has another excuse. He says, I'm embarrassing. I've been embarrassing before. Maybe some of you have been embarrassing. And and Moses says this to God, "Uh, pardon uh, me, your servant, Lord. I have never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue. I can't communicate anything you want me to do. I just can't physically do this. So I'm getting the excuse I'm not qualified. I'm getting the excuse uh, this whole thing's a dumb idea. I'm insecure. I can't even communicate. And I love this. He says, uh, Moses to God, you know what? You actually should just send someone else. Okay, just send someone else. I don't want to pull this thing off. And basically what he's saying is I am worthless. I am worthless. Failure is crippling Moses. God wants to move him from the sheep herding business to the people herding business. But his negative I am statements is keeping him from this new adventure that God has for him. And then God finally says this to Moses. When you talk to the Israelites, when you talk to Pharaoh, just say this about who I am. I am has sent me to you. I am has sent me to you. And I've always been confused by that. I always thought God doesn't know how to finish a sentence, right? I am what? It's like I am what has sent to you. But the more you think about it, God is everything, right? He is full of love and compassion and power and beauty and brilliance. He's everything that we need and more. He's all this encompassing. He is the I am, which means that when we lay down our life to him, then we now can know who we are because of who he is. I am because I know I am. That I am love and I am compassion. I am power. I am brilliance because I know I am. There was this great passage that became my anthem during these past uh, few years whenever I lost the computer and other failures were happening in my life. And I hope today this will be a breath of fresh air for you. And I would love for you just to write this down or type this in your phone. If you're feeling in the same stage of just having that negative third word define who you are. And it's out of Psalm 139. It says this, How precious are your thoughts about me, O God. They cannot be numbered. I can't even count them. They outnumber the grains of sand. And when I wake up, you are still with me. I want you to soak that in, that God has precious thoughts about you. He's not talking behind your back. He's not gossiping about you. He has precious thoughts about you. In fact, there's so many thoughts, he's obsessed with you. Like how does he get anything else done in this universe when all he's doing is thinking about how amazing and precious you are? And I love at the end that he's there with you when you wake up. That no matter what your parenting failure was, no matter your marriage failure was, even that moment where you just resent or you go back in that substance that you just really didn't want to go back to, that he's there with you when you wake up. See, I'm not qualified to do what I'm doing right now. I'm not qualified to do anything. But 2 Corinthians, Paul says this about us. It is not that we think we are qualified to do anything on our own. Our qualification, it comes from God. I know I am because I know I am. I know I am loved because I know I am. 
And I want to go back to what Moses and the excuses that he gave. And because of knowing the I am, it all turns around. And hopefully for some of you can grab hold of one of this for you. Moses says, I'm not qualified, or we say we're not qualified. But I know I am qualified because I know I am. Or the next one, I, know, I am confused, but I know I am wise because I know I am. I am secure. I know I am secure because I know I am. I know I am embarrassing, but I know I am confident because I know I am. I am worthless. I know I am worthy because I know I am. So what's your third word? What do you sense God right now giving to you that he promises of who you are because he has precious thoughts about you? The hard thing is how to hold on to that in the midst of failures and things in our life. And so what I would try to do is just have two images and two statements for us to help us get through the week and hold on to that third word that God has given us. The first thing is to live the Instagrammable life. Yes, I made that word up, Instagrammable. You can write that down. To live the Instagrammable life. And you know, of course, when you post something on Facebook or Instagram, it's usually a highlight of something in your life or something you're grateful for. And what I've been trying to do, instead of posting something, I've allowed God himself to say, this is from me to you. This is how much I think and know about you. And so there's this example, it's really dumb, uh, but hopefully it sticks with you, uh, that when my kids and I were on our couch, I'll do this thing where I'll act like I'm falling asleep, okay? And I'll fall asleep and, and then I'll start snoring. I'll fake snore. And then as I do that, I'll start tickling my kids and they'll freak out. They can be tickled for 24 hours. It's exhausting, but they can be tickled. And then I'll wake up and go, oh man, I had the craziest dream that I was tickling somebody, which is a weird dream to have. But they were like, they would start laughing. They said, dad, go to sleep, go to sleep. So I go back to sleep and I'll start snoring again. And I'll tickle them again. I'll wake up. Oh man, I had the craziest dream that I was tickling somebody. And they go, it was us, it was us. Like go back to sleep, go back to sleep. And it was one of those Instagrammable moments where God himself, it has felt him tugging me and saying, this is how I think of you. I don't want us to be business-like. I care about your failures and I care, I care about your mistakes, but I want to have these moments with you. Because here's the thing, I know I am loved because I know I am. He uses my kids and this dumb thing that we do to have him show me how much he loves me. For some of you, that's exactly what you need today. You need to have that image of God of the universe wanting to have that kind of relationship with you and decide today to get rid of that negative third word you've been holding on for too long and give, allow him to give you a new third word. I love what Robert Frost says. He says this, how many things have to happen to you before something occurs to you? How many things have to happen to you before something occurs to you today? Make the decision to get rid of that negative word and hold on to what God has for you. The next thing, is to have consistent conversations with the I am. Have consistent conversations with the I am. I think if Moses was running this lap with us, he would say that my success and accomplishments of parting the sea and freeing the Israelites, the Ten Commandments, manna from heaven, water from the rocks, following the cloud of fire wherever we went, all that's because I constantly communicated to the I am. It wasn't me, it was God. And this was huge for me. Because a few years ago during this whole time of the computer thing and other failures that seemed to be happening in my life, every time I would speak and every time I'd speak to students, 
I would get off the stage and I would put my head down low and I would start beating myself up. I thought, Nate, you're an idiot. Like, why are you doing this? No one cares. No one's laughing. No one's being impacted by what you do. And I would just, just mentally destroy myself. And so I had to go to counseling because of this. I needed help because that third word, negative third word, began to define and affect everything about me. And so the counselor just looked at me and said, okay, uh, what if your son Aiden, what if uh, he's the one who speaks? And my son, look how awesome this guy is, right? He's the rock star. What if he was speaking? And as soon as he got off the stage, he put his head down low, and you could just tell he starts playing those games in his mind, putting those third word, negative third words in his mind. What would you want to tell him? And, of course, looking at this sweet kid, you'd be like, I am so proud of you. Dude, you're like the best. Like, I think you're so amazing. Everything you did and everything you said was amazing. God's going to take care of the rest. You're, I'm so proud of you. I love you so much. And the counselor said, well, what if every time, it's, every time you finish speaking, you just ask God, God, what did you think about that? What do you say of me today? And every time I just think of those same words, Nate, I'm so proud of you. I think you're so amazing. I love you so much. And for some of us today, whatever failures you bring in, whatever that negative third word that you have, I hope that God is saying that to you today, that I'm so proud of you. I love you so much. I know there's been some failures and there have been some mistakes, but I'm here with you every time you get up. I think about you all the time. I'm obsessed with you. I can barely get anything done because of how much I think of you. So the question of today is, what is your third word? What's the third word you feel like God is placing on you today? And what's really going to be really special is as we're done today and after the announcements in the lobby and at the Southeast campus, we have a board for you as well where we've turned all over the announcement posters. And it's kind of a white area and there's markers attached to the wall. And I want you to take a marker and I want you to write down that new third word you feel like God has given you today. I want you to cement that in your heart, cement that in your mind. And not only for you, but I want us as a community, as a church, as we walk by those boards, to be able to be encouraged by this is what God is saying to all of us. This is what he thinks of all of us. And I want you just to take a picture of it, make it an Instagrammable moment. Beside that poster is also just a list of I am statements that God says about us and has reference points in the Bible of where uh, he says that about us. Take a picture of that too and carry that with you for the rest of this week. For me, my word is immovable. And God has put that in my heart this week and He tells us to be strong and immovable. And I want to be immovable in my marriage with my kids. I want to be immovable as a student ministries pastor. I want to be immovable in my faith. Even when trials and failures hit me, I want to be immovable because of what God says about me. What is your word?